You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to wrap up the, our, our time in 1 Peter this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 14. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's found on page 12 of your worship guide. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray together. O make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip in conversation. That as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. This would be a good time to announce that we're going to add to our worship service a time of greeting in which we kiss each other uh, frequently during... No, that will be the day I resign as pastor. Um, My introvert self will not tolerate that. Um, Henry Nowen, I've, I've mentioned that name to you before, he's, he's one of those authors and really heroes in my life that just have pastored me through his writing, and that's how I know him, the only way I know him. Uh, so it, to me, he's one of my, my favorites, and just everything he writes kind of speaks to my heart and to my soul, but if you're not familiar with him, he, he was a Catholic priest, and he's, he was a well-known writer, um, and, but he... He lived and worked in the, the places of the Ivory Tower, the world of the Ivory Towers of Notre Dame and Yale and Harvard Divinity Schools and, and where, you know, he did quite well and he blessed a lot of people with his writings from those contexts and that sort of intellectual, you know, academic world and mind and work that he did. Henry himself uh, suffered from this, this crippling self-doubt throughout his entire life. He suffered much from it. He suffered uh, much with struggles of his own assurance of his salvation. He struggled with profound loneliness throughout his entire life. Uh, Though he never made it public, since his death, those who knew him best say that he, he did struggle with his own sexuality, and he he had profound doubts uh, in times of feeling lost in his faith. And it was during one of these times of just lostness and, and struggle that Henry learned that for the Christian, uh, 
the way up out of a period of lostness often comes through moving downward. Uh, and through his friendship with a man named Jean Vanier, he, Henry came to live at a, a place called La Arche, uh, Daybreak Community. And this is a community in Toronto for people with profound mental and physical handicaps and disabilities. And there is when Henry met Adam, one of the most uh, needy people at the La Arche community with his physical and mental disabilities. And it was Henry's daily task, every single day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, to help Adam get into and out of the bed, to help him with his bedtime routine every day. And this is a job under which Henry chafed quite a bit. Uh, he did not like it, especially at first. It, it required something which Henry just did not have a great deal of, which was patience. It took Adam a long time to do just the simplest of tasks like buttoning buttons on his shirt. And, and Adam's, Adam's disabilities were so profound that he, he could not talk. He could not communicate verbally. And the, the other members of the community and the attendants that attended to Adam would often talk to him and often just speak to him throughout the day, even though Adam just did not have the ability to respond the way you or I would respond. And so here was this intellectual man <laughs> used to living this life of the mind and ideas and writing and words in these elite institutions surrounded by the biggest brains that there are. Now he's caring for a man who struggles to fasten his own shirt. And he's caring for a man who neither knows or cares about all the books that Henry Nouwen has written. And he couldn't read them anyway, even if he did know about them. And here's what Henry Nouwen wrote in a book called The Selfless Way of Christ, Downward Mobility in the Spiritual Life. You can read this book in maybe an hour and a half. Um, and I'm a slow reader. The basis of all ministry is the experience of God's unlimited and unlimiting acceptance of us as beloved children. An acceptance so full, so total, and all-embracing that it sets us free from our compulsion to be seen, praised, and admired, and frees us for Christ who leads us on the road of service. Verse 6 of 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The way of following Jesus is through suffering which leads to glory. In other words, you, you got to get down to get up, you know, I think is what he's saying. 1 Peter five ten through 11, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter bookends this last little section of what he wants to really say to his, his audience with these reminders of that suffering and glory are intimately linked. The character of God is the basis for his faithfulness to this promise of future exaltation through suffering. 
And the deeper into our weakness we go in suffering, the more we are able to rest in the mighty hand of God. The path of the elect exiles leads through temporary suffering, but ends in eternal glory. I just have two points this morning with some subpoints: The humility of true discipleship, first, and then the glory of grace. So that's what we're going to look at. The humility of true discipleship and then the glory of grace. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. True discipleship is born of a humility that is only possible because it is dependent upon the mighty hand of God. It is based on the, the might of God's character. It is based upon his faithfulness, his determination to save, and his intention to rescue and to redeem so that at the proper time he might exalt this people that he is redeeming for himself. When we talk about humility, I mean, there's a couple of things that, that come to mind. When we talk about humility, we're talking about, of course, hopefully this is one of the first things that comes to your mind, the kind of humility that results in repentance. The kind of humility that, that uh, confesses who we are before the Lord as sinful people. That is sort of the, the first kind of humility that is, that is required of a Christian, Right? To have the humility to acknowledge and to own our sinfulness and brokenness before a righteous and holy God and to cling to that provision which he has provided for us in Christ Jesus by faith. But then there's also a more difficult sort of humility that comes later and is harder to come by and harder to accept. And that's the kind of humility that submits. The kind of humility... In this passage, especially, that submits to the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in as the good plans of God. So, okay, if you're, if you're keeping score and taking notes, here's my first sub-point. Disciples rest in the care of God. Six and seven, again, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. What a, like, what a wonderful thing. What is something you, you'd want to hear from God, from his holy word? Like This is scriptural truth here. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter's readers had much to be anxious about. Suspicion and persecution from authorities and the pagan culture that they lived in, that Peter has been calling them exiles in now, although they're, they're by birth and, and lineage like actual natives, they're now, because of their faith in Christ, exiles in their own culture. So suspicion and persecution there, abandonment and isolation from friends and family who now just cannot accept their newfound faith and Christianity, and the ethics that they are now called to walk according to. Plus all the normal everyday cares of of work, and health, and family, and relationships, and just life in general. But the word anxieties here is is really a singular word. It's a singular word. It's like all of the anxieties, individual anxieties that they're experiencing, and, and going through, and walking through, just sort of rolled up into one. There is nothing excluded 
from this list of anxieties that they're experiencing in their lives that they cannot cast upon God. This is a call and an invitation to lament. (laughs) Grief and worry and fear and pain and waiting, all of it is here. All that is here wrapped up in this invitation to cast your anxieties upon him. It all seems so close. All of those things seem so close. Sometimes those things seem to just breathe down our collars. But what Peter is reminding his people of is that God is closer. God is also near. Cast your anxieties on him. It's like, it's like when you've, if you've ever been on a long backpacking trip or something, you have this backpack on all day long and you're, you've been hiking and you just, you finally just cast it off and just take it off and you just sort of does this thing where it swings so naturally off of your shoulder and then it just kind of beautifully falls to the ground and then you're just sort of, you're lightweight. You, you take that heavy load off your back and throw it onto the shoulders of your heavenly father. In those moments, you can do that. In your moments alone with God, you can do that. You can cast this heavy load, this weight, onto the mighty shoulders of God. This is sweet because He cares for you. (laughs) He loves you. He wants to take that weight off of you because he, He is your Father and you are His beloved son or daughter. So the next subpoint here is disciples are watchful and resist the devil. 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. This, this idea of watchfulness, I'm just, I had to think, because of Peter and his history, this, this command to be watchful had just this special punch for him. And he... And, and Peter's going back in his own mind to the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you remember when we were walking through Mark together in chapter 14, Mark 37 and 38, it says that Jesus came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Remember who Mark used as his source material for his gospel? It was was Peter, right? So here's Peter telling Mark this story about about the, the, the moment in the garden, and he's telling him these words that Jesus said to him. And now Peter here is is passing along these lessons learned from this gentle rebuke from Jesus that took place in the garden. Be watchful, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Keep your mind sharp. Keep your eyes open, is what Peter is saying. Keep your discernment radar active. I think he, he could have easily have said, instead of watch, he could have easily said, stay awake. <laughs> we have an enemy, the accuser, the devil, and he is real, and he is at work. 
And he is, Peter says, prowling around. The devil is not to be underestimated. Rest assured, he is way smarter, way stronger, way more powerful than you or I. But he is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He's not all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere, all at once. Peter says he's a lion, but he's a false lion. He's like, he's like Puzzle the Donkey from C.S. Lewis's Narnia book, The Last Battle. Do you remember, remember Puzzle the Donkey? Puzzle had a friend who wasn't a very good friend. He was a terrible friend, actually, an ape named Shift. And they found an old lion skin one day and, and Shift wanting to seize power and, and the reign of Narnia for himself made this ridiculous lion costume and put it on the back of Puzzle the donkey. And he parades him around in, in very poor lighting conditions um, and is somehow able to convince many Narnians uh, that he is the real lion Aslan. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. No one who had ever seen a real lion would have been taken in for a moment. But if someone who had never seen a lion looked at Puzzle in his lion skin, he just might mistake him for a lion if he didn't come too close and if the lighting wasn't so good and if Puzzle didn't let out a bray and did not make any noise with his hooves. You look wonderful, wonderful, said the ape. If anyone saw you now, they would think you were Aslan, the great lion himself. Remember the true identity of the devil. Take heart. Firmly resist him. Peter calls him a roaring lion seeking who may devour. But remember that we are subjects of the true lion, the true lion of God's people, Jesus Verse 9, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him in your prayers with your mind and your eyes and your, your, your wakefulness open to, to his temptations and attack. Resist him in your, your filling your heart and mind with the truth of God's word so that you'll recognize his lies when it comes. Resist him in your relationships as you surround yourself with brothers and sisters who will help you recognize and, and draw you back from the brink when you, when you are gone insane with sin. Resist him with regular one-on-one -on -one communion with God and his word and prayer. But also remember that we do not stand alone. Be encouraged in your resistance that the, the battle to resist the devil isn't a battle fought in single combat, but it's rather you are a part of this great army of God fighting alongside brothers and sisters engaged in the same struggle, that the church is the church militant, resisting the devil and his temptations. So that's the humility of disciples. Let's look at the glory of grace. Verses 10 and 11. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be 
dominion forever and ever. Glorification it seems to be just intimately linked with suffering. Our eternal glorification in Christ, in heaven, is somehow tied so closely to suffering that the two are scarcely mentioned without one another, especially in Peter's epistle here. It is through suffering that our glorification comes about. This, this fourfold work of God comes after the suffering of these elect exiles. And this kind of is Peter's final word to them. This is kind of Peter's closing argument, if you will, to what he's trying to say. But really what it is, is it's another expression of Peter's explanation of what is this imperishable inheritance that he started his epistle off with. This imperishable inheritance that is kept in heaven for you by this God of all grace. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore. And it is the work of the God of all grace. I mean, there's an emphatic punch here in the grammar in, in terms of it is God the Father who is doing the work, Right? It is God who is at work. The God of all grace, he himself will restore, will strengthen, will establish. And all four of these verbs are are future tense, that this is something that, that reminds us that as we walk through this suffering time, God is near and and close to us as we walk. In the here and now, God Himself will remain with us through to the end. God will move even closer to his people in the end as he brings us out of exile suffering and into his future glory. The God of all grace will restore. Let's kind of look at these four verbs. The God of all grace will restore. Think of Peter and the other fishermen sitting on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And what are they doing? They're they're mending their nets. They're sewing up their nets. They're, they're fixing their nets. They're, they're perfecting their nets. They're closing up holes and gaps, and they're removing debris, and they're untangling their nets. That's kind of the sense of this restoration word that is used, that God will make whole what suffering has torn and broken. That he will heal us of the trauma that we endure as we suffer. He will attend to our hurts and our wounds, mental, emotional, physical. The God of all grace will restore and he will confirm. When suffering just doubles you over with pain and takes the wind out of you, the God of all grace will set you upright. And he will be the wind in your sails. The the suffering that that so often redirects us inwardly into the places of anger and self-pity and doubt and fear that, that as God works his glory through suffering, we are directed then to look at him and the glory of his grace because we so desperately need it. That we are confirmed in our faith through the, by witnessing the faithfulness of God in our suffering.
These last two verbs are almost architectural in nature. The, he will strengthen and he will establish. I'm reminded of, of chapter 1, 4, and 5. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. That God is the builder and he is building us up into a temple, a living temple. Another, another C.S. Lewis quote for you from Mere Christianity. He says, imagine, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's, he's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And You know that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but... He is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. But all of this leads us somewhere. It leads us to adoration. It leads us to the adoration of the builder. Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's so hard to believe when we're in the middle of it. It's so hard to to believe that that this God is doing what he said he's going to do. It's so hard to trust him and his faithfulness. No matter how many times he proves himself faithful, our brokenness, our broken eyes only see what is right in front of us, the pain of the here and the now that hurts so terribly. It's hard to, to project what use that pain will be in the one day, someday of our glory. But... We have it in his word as the promises of God that, that he will lead us through this exile time into this glorious presence of him in his kingdom forever. And this dominion forever and ever will be ours to enjoy as we glorify him. Believe it or not, the one day... Believe it or not, one day the pain of your present suffering will lead to our joyful adoration of the God of all grace. The pain now is part of our joy in worship in the one day, someday, glory of God's presence. He is near. He is moving near. He has moved near to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is He has provided a way that we might make sense of this struggle by recognizing Christ as our Savior and trusting in Him not only for our salvation but for the the strength we need to to walk ahead in times of trouble knowing that He will restore, He will confirm, He will strengthen, He will establish. As we come to this table, that's what He's doing. As we enjoy the sacraments together week in and week out, What are we doing except being strengthened by the nourishing, broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ? Being being set back on our feet from a rough week and maybe a rough week ahead 
by the assurance and comfort knowing that we have a Savior who has loved us to the uttermost, being strengthened and established, being given that foundation of of hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's come to this table this morning in adoration of him, knowing that his dominion is forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. O God of all grace, we do come to you this morning recognizing our great need and your great provision in Christ Jesus. We come to you this morning recognizing that that in him you've provided all that we all that we need. Lord, help us to to glorify you now as we come to this table, as we participate in this sacrament. Help us to come as those who recognize our need, but also more than that, recognize the beauty of the Savior who meets our needs. Lord, be pleased in what we do here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.